You're listening to Techno Odyssey, a download on BBC Radio 4. I'm in a very rainy New York City, and I'm about to set in motion the first of three Techno Odysseys, journeys into the technological systems and environments we all rely on, but which hide in plain sight all around us. There's no better example of this than the internet. We're all increasingly reliant on the internet, but where is it exactly? And this is why I'm in New York. I'm standing outside a building in Tribeca called 60 Hudson, which I've been told is a big East Coast hub for data traffic. If I were to send an email now from my phone, the chances are it will pass through this building, 60 Hudson, as it begins its journey. So I'm going to do just that. I'll address an email to my producer at the BBC in London and send it out on the first of my techno odysseys. And we'll all follow it on its journey. So here we go. I'm sending the email now. There it goes, I've hit send. Right, where to next? The connection between New York and London on our cable happens in about 3% of one second. I slowed the weightless email down, threw anchors on its light. The better you could see it sound the depths, catch it mid-flight, and stand a chance of racing home hard on its path and tail. And so I took the long and low frequencies of the whale and packed them deep into its hold. I added the iron wrecks berthed on the ocean bed the gold beneath their nursery decks. And with attachments such as these, the email can be clocked, flickering through the darkest seas and even made to talk. If you were standing outside 60 Hudson Street, the path would not be as simple as flying through the air up to the ninth floor and then traveling across the ocean. There'd be a bit of sort of pinballing back and forth before it got there. It would maybe go to a cell phone tower in a nearby building, then onto the cell phone company's network, and then most likely to another building somewhere in Manhattan, uh, perhaps uh, 40 West Street, where Verizon's major network hub is. Talk. What would an email say except the words it carries? Encrypted, lightfast, locked away, and always in a hurry. But then from there, it would go back to 60 Hudson, most likely to the ninth floor, where at some point it would connect uh, from one refrigerator-sized router with lots of blinking lights on it via a yellow fiber optic cable up into the ceiling down to another refrigerator-sized router with lots of blinking lights on it that belongs to one of the transatlantic networks. Uh, perhaps one known as Hibernia Atlantic that uh, takes a bit of a special route. Its cargo never settles strange or ripens in the passage. Its words are never rearranged. The medium is the message. So from the ninth floor cage, literally a metal cage belonging to Hibernia Atlantic at 60 Hudson Street, it might go through Connecticut along the railroad tracks to Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, then enter, go underwater across the New England coast, take a quick stop in Halifax in Nova Scotia at the Hibernia Atlantic's landing station there, kind of big lighthouse kind of thing. It doesn't look like a lighthouse, but that's effectively what it does. 
Though light slowed down to ballad speed, reminds us where it's been, a journey through a spider thread of fibre that contains the babel of a phone exchange, a biblical store of print, a million pictures if we break its glass at any point. And then it would take the most important step of its journey, the longest step, from Hibernia Atlantic's landing station, just a little bit outside of Halifax, across the ocean to Southport in the UK. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always tended to think the internet passes through the air or it gets beamed down from a cloud. But everybody I've met so far is talking in terms of cables. It is true to say that the internet is a cloud conceptually, but in practice, in the real life, you've got a world wide web which is made of actual wires and connections. And those wires are optical fibers. And most of these fibers are submarine. The bulk of that internet for globality is through the oceans, Atlantic, Pacific, and now around continents, subcontinents, seas, across the world. Every day, the Earth is uh, circled twice by new installed fibers, which is going to convert the current, electrical current, into light. So if the current is data, little pulses of current, we get little pulses of light. There is a kind of alchemy whereby the words we write are turned from electricity and magic into light. The light beam in the optical fibre has the maximum ever possible imaginated capacity of transporting data at the rate of 1,000 gigabit per second across the world. They're not called lighthouse keepers and they're not called light watchmen. They're stationed on the edge of land. We all depend on them. We are quite isolated and because we don't advertise the fact that what we actually do, people seem to read quite strange things into what this facility is. We've been likened to a secret government organisation. But no, we're actually a um, private company, basically, that carries transatlantic data communications. The importers and exporters, the keepers of the flame, between the earth and salt waters. And no one knows their names. When I visited the Hibernate Atlantic cable station in Halifax... I was a bit early. I was supposed to meet the keeper of it about 9 o'clock. And uh, I rang the buzzer outside, and somebody answered, but it was a person on the other side of the cable uh, in Southport who said, oh, yeah, you know, Dave's on his way. He'll be there, and then buzzed me in and opened the electronic gate from the other side of the ocean, which reminded me that a cable across the ocean operates as a single machine with a building on one side and a building on the other side. Perhaps they practice translation because they also turn the light that's crossed the wide ocean back into words again. Right, I've got you a little picture here just showing the optimal band of light that's used for data transmission. It's referred to as the C-band. It's a light at the, uh, at the far end of the spectrum that is ideally suited for carrying data rather than being actually physically visible. So, in terms of being referred to as a lighthouse keeper. Yeah, more a, a light watchman, I think. 
So, my email is about to dip its toe into the Atlantic Ocean. We're standing right on the verge of a voyage out to sea, but it all starts with a manhole. Which is the last point and the last joint on the cable from the terrestrial network to the undersea network, and it'll go from there out offshore, out towards the continental slope, around 400, 500 metres, and then it goes off the continental shelf, down the slope and into what we call the abyssal plain, into the, the really deep areas of the ocean. As it crosses the Atlantic, we'll have to cross over the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is effectively where the continental plates are moving apart and there is a, effectively a mountain range in the middle of the Atlantic there which we have to cross over. A telegraphic plateau said to stretch from Newfoundland to Europe meant a cable laid across the Great Grey Pond. We often are coming across many of the cables which have been laid beforehand and of course we've been laying cables in the Atlantic since the 1850s. Victoria praised the president. The old world thanked the new. Hats and fireworks were sent into the air. Sparks flew along the miles of copper core. A wire craze ensued. The cable linked the trading floors. The speculators queued. We've gone through from telegraph era to the coaxial era and now on to fibre optic cables. The pond had other ideas. The plateau had been mapped on little more than hopes and prayers, and soon the cable snapped. Once fully loaded, the ship can then sail and lay about 3,000 kilometres of cable in one go. The Grand Banks and the Flemish Cap, the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift, Admiralty maps, nautical charts... For the deeper water installations, the vessel is trying to control a point which is 44 kilometres behind it in terms of where the cable's touching down. Henceforth, trawlers and ocean-going birds cross sweet nothing. Below, a place where all our light and words are not supposed to go. Okay, let's pause somewhere under the mid-Atlantic and think about this, this lonely thread of cable that's passing along the cold, dark seabed. And now, think of a shiny display in an hotel conference thousands of miles away. ...number one in this top 100 electric component manufacturers in China. What about your uh, plans for Middle East? For Middle East? Yes. We have our strategy that... I'm at Suboptic in Paris. This is the submarine cable industry's big conference. And also, I have to say, looking around its shop window, I'm wandering through the, the aisles of displays here and definitely feeling like I'm in the wrong shop. I'm fascinated by trade fairs and industry gatherings. I think ever since I saw a film called The Conversation where Gene Hackman wears possibly the most diaphanous raincoat ever committed to celluloid. And at one point he attends this espionage convention and suboptic where I am now hasn't any spy paraphernalia but it's an introduction to this huge hidden 
world of cables and cable ships and ocean surveys. So I'm going to see if I can talk to a few people and try and make some sense of it all. So are you able to increase the capacity of ready-laid cables? It's hard to explain that between essentially New York and London, there's a cable no bigger than your arm laying on the ocean seabed. And that's where your internet comes from. There are about 360 to 400, give or take, international submarine fiber systems that basically keep the world propped up. But to give you a sense of the purity of fiber, optical fiberglass, imagine a, a window that would be 50 kilometers thick, and you would see 10% of light flashing from the other side. Wow. The things our email might have seen on foot by human scale. Above its glass tunnel, the sun, a white dwarf, winking pale, a flare lit over no man's land, backlighting ghostly shoals, squadrons of cod, glittering ranks of herring, long contrails mark shipping lanes. In a tanker's wake, a wished-on coin descends for minutes, carrying its luck to darkness out of mind. And then the falling off the edge, the hagfish and the black, pressurized tons of nothingness, the echo-imagined dark. This one with the thinnest outer diameter is laid in the water depth of 8,000 meters. Because in the deep sea, the environment is very calm and there are no fish and no damage from human beings. So there is no need for even one layer of armoring. There is a lot that goes on to keep the traffic moving, and these cables do break. And when they break, ships are deployed to repair them. Get the cable on board, they'll take all the armoring wires off, take the polyethylene coating off, right, and then that sticking out at the end will be the fibres. And so ships with very highly qualified crews. So I'm just going to put in there, and what is this little sonic bath with some acetone in it? Uh, we'll go and bring up a, a cable onto the deck of a ship. I need to cut it now before I join it. And take that piece that needs to be repaired actually into what amounts to a laboratory in the hold. What you've got in here is a couple of electrodes, and what they're going to do is we're going to put these two glass elements together and force them together across two electrodes, which fire an arc across. And make the repair and put it back down, but of course it's expensive. And you'll see the fibres come in either side. A break can cost up to a million dollars and might take as much as two or three weeks to, to do if it happens in the X-ray, put the buffers on deep part of the Atlantic in the middle of winter. And away it goes. Every second the language hits the beach. An entire literature, Manhattan's phone book tunnelling under dune hills on the edge of a new continent. Deep marum roots might feel it. Streaming porn and stock movements, a hard tsunami of binary garbage destined to meet its death on the battlements of firewalls and spam filters. A carnage that never lets up. Oh, you buddy, I'm burning your networks. I'm just going to look at our beach manhole just there, so I'm just going to turn around on the beach and just pull there. All right, Cheers, buddy, thank you. One long and silent slew of information invading beneath the parking kiosk where business is slow, the ice cream van where trade has died a death. 
a child out playing with bucket and spade who digs down through the oily seam of sand and listens deep into the hole he's made and hears a big wave always coming into land. So I've arrived on the beach in the northwest of England. I can't be too specific. It's near Southport, somewhere between the Ribble Estuary and the Mersey Estuary, and it's a wide-open, huge, windswept sort of space. It's a bleak sort of place. It's a place of dune systems and sand hills. Everything feels in flux and like it's moving about a lot. And I know there have been lots of wrecks which surface and then seal themselves, bury themselves up again as the sea constantly moves the sands around. And this is where the cable that's been carrying my email from New York has finally made landfall in the British Isles. Below us, below approximately two feet of sand, is a chamber about 12 feet deep where the fibre actually comes into the beach. This is called the beach manhole. There's nothing to see, but beneath my feet now is so much traffic that the world depends upon. It's staggering. Standing out here on the beach and you can smell the salt and we're, we're, we're up to our ankles in sand. There's something lovely and elemental about it as well. It's almost like Marconi's S, you know, being sent from Cornwall across to Newfoundland. You really get a sense of how physical and the distances involved as well, looking out to sea. So if I want to follow my email now, I guess I have to head inland. And so here where the sand peters out and we hit tarmac, we follow the path to the next stage. And what would that be? So from here, we leave the beach and we're basically going to jump in the car to follow the route the email would take. And we're going to go to our cable landing station now and I'll show you exactly where the fibre comes into the building and that's where your email actually breaks the surface somewhere. So our cable, we're following a cable route. If you look, you can just see a scar yeah. on the road. That is our cable. That one is segment A. And it's, it's hidden in plain sight, isn't it? Because it, you were just driving down an ordinary... We're driving down road, an ordinary, we? nondescript road here in Southport where nobody knows what's under the ground. It, it's pretty much like any other service in the ground. No one sees the electricity, but they expect it to be there when they flick a switch. Nobody sees the internet, they expect it to be there when they turn the computer on. So, if we start down here at the point where the cable actually enters the building, So when the cable comes from the sea via a subduct, it enters the building here. Tim, so just hang on a minute. Can I touch this? Yeah, of course you can. So these, these the, yellow cables here, yeah. on the other end of them is Nova Scotia? Pretty much so, yes. Now, touching the fibre is not a problem at all like that. If you were to bend this fibre to any great degree, that would affect the transmission of the light because obviously inside that, that small cable that's only three millimetres thick there is an infinitely smaller cable right in the centre of it which is less thickness than a human hair and that's made of pure glass. In fact, it would probably terminate the signal if it was to be kinked at 90 degrees. But just if I hold it again very carefully, yep. how much data is passing through my hand there? Uh, at the minute there, you're holding two line pairs so approximately about two terabytes of traffic if you was to break that down into say telephone conversations maybe as many as four billion telephone conversations at the same time 
So my email that I sent from New York has reached Nova Scotia, has been yep. converted into a form of light or a form of yes. a, a bandwidth. Yep. Shot across the ocean, you've Correct. received it, yep. and you're converting it back. Your transmission would come to us as light, we would demodulate it, then pass it on again as a different wavelength of light, would be sent out on another transmission path, this time terrestrially rather than marine, off to a large data centre, wherever that may be, London, Manchester, the north of England, anywhere. We just got to Tally House, which just looks like a huge fortified non-building really it just looks like a big silvery metal box there's nothing no distinguishing features nothing to pick it out i'm just going to call and try and buzz myself in from off the edges of the map to feed a hard demand the bark and seeds and roots and sap arrive from distant lands we're standing in what used to be actually east india dock and about 100 years or so ago, this is where all the fast cutty ships, like the Cutty Sark, were bringing spices into London. And, so, and that's reflected in many of the street names around here. There's like Coriander Avenue, which we're standing on now, Rosemary Avenue around the corner, Nutmeg. The seeds and roots and sap and bark that fuel a deep desire have travelled through a salty dark and feed a constant fire. And of course what's coming in today is not spices, but data and lots of it. And this is one of the most important connectivity nodes in Europe. It's where a lot of the subsea systems that you guys have been looking into already actually come in and terminate. We folded up the ancient maps, and now our city streets memorialise an age of sap and bark and seeds and roots. The internet lives in buildings like this. Grey, nondescript. In fact, part of them didn't really have any windows either. And what's odd about these buildings is that they're not really designed to house people but technology, so servers and routers and switches. So they're kind of very, very unusual buildings. And, and from the outside, you've just got no idea what's going on here. Uh, all my usual areas, so four, nine, 15. There's a place where emails go to sleep, 19. where searches leave their trace before this journey through the deep. 110, P1, and then finally Star Suite cooled and secret place. So you can hear, just standing outside, quite a roar, can't you, actually? And we open the door now. Welcome to a data centre. <laughs> where information throws a cast, where pixels turn to sand. And on our left here is a row of cabinets. So these are the standard cabinets, or sometimes called racks, that house the equipment. So all the switches, the routers, the servers that the internet runs on are built to a standard size so they can be mounted in these cabinets, basically. Where alphabets of grit and dust settle into a kind of reef that's always being built. A sedimentary keep. A kind of coral made from silt of searches gone to sleep. But never truly lost. Later, a creature comes along that can decrypt our data with its long and sticky tongue. Up on this cabinet over here, we have a customer who takes an internet feed from us, so he connects from that cabinet there over to this one here where our routers and switches sit. And then we also, in turn, connect to other networks for our upstream internet supplies. Last hiding place of our emails. A room that always hums. A room that's not allowed to fail. A room where data swarms. 
So it's this mesh of short runs of fiber at the end of the day that connect these massive transatlantic pan-European systems together. Where data keepers cool the racks and lift the frames from hives and cross-connect with other stacks so colonies can thrive. I keep thinking about um, a Lancashire cotton mill, that kind of din, that kind of sense of industry. But, and this is the crucial difference, there's nobody here. It's completely deserted and it's running all by itself. Or think of this as a hotel where information goes to lie low with the clientele, a room with no windows, where check-in time and check-out time are practically the same before the router sends it home, if you could call it home. It's probably a good time to pause for breath and have a little recap here. My email's crossed the ocean. It's made landfall in the UK. It's coming through one of the cable landing stations at a place like Southport and then been sent to London, where it's probably passed through one of the big data centres like those in Docklands, Tally House. But it still hasn't got to the BBC. I've come to the BBC now, awaiting the arrival of my email. The first step is it comes through to our anti-spam provider. If it's a spam message, it's removed straight away. It doesn't even come into the BBC. Once they've decided that it's active and relevant, it then gets forwarded into our data centres. There's one in Watford and there's one in White City. Once it's in the data centre, it then gets forwarded to the front-end servers. It then goes into the recipient's mailbox. And it's that point that the person who's receiving the email will then would like to view the message. When you're looking at your email mailbox, the email itself isn't actually on your PC. The email itself is still on the server, and that's where you're viewing it from. So anything you do to that email, you're doing directly on the server. So if you delete it, you delete it from the server. If you move it or reply to it, that's what you're doing. You're interacting directly with the server. Right, so I'm in the new building at Broadcasting House, which is huge, and I'm looking for my producer. Um, I think sits somewhere in this open plan office here, and here he is, here he is, here he is. Neil, have you checked your inbox? Well, I've been waiting to open it, so uh, (laughs) it did arrive a little while ago. Oh, fantastic. Um, A little bit quicker than you did. Yeah, here we go. Paul Farley. Ah, there it is. Can't see a message, but there is an attachment. Let's open it. I slowed the weightless email down, threw anchors on its light. The better you could see it sound the depths, catch it mid-flight and stand a chance of racing home hard on its path and tail. And so I took the long and low frequencies of the whale and packed them... Sometimes when I've flown across the Atlantic for seven hours, I've imagined the cable paying out behind the aircraft for seven hours and lying on the bottom of the ocean. There's no doubt that if these systems could be seen, they would be wonders of the world. But because they're so invisible, people are unaware of them, and they're not but they lie there at the bottom of the ocean amongst the wrecks and the the whales and the fish and the seaweed quietly transmitting these billions of bits of information that make our world what it is today.
Techno Odyssey is written and presented by Paul Farley. The reader is Indira Varma. The producer is Neil McCarthy.